0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Milman from Designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Milman talks with Koy Vinn about how being an immigrant led him into the world of design, about his challenges as design director at NewYorkTimes.com, and about why he's bullish on the artistic possibilities of the iPad. You can just swipe to make a mark, and there's nothing more intuitive than that. And I realized that you could use this device to get people expressing themselves visually, making art. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Koivun has taken the experience of making a collage, and, if possible, he's made it better. He's the creator of the addictive new iPad app Mixel where you can play around with digital images, post your creations, and then watch as other people create new mixels from your art. It's just the most recent feat for Koi Vin, who's been named one of Fast Company's 50 most influential designers. In 2006, Vin became design director at the New York Times, where he oversaw some of the site's most creative, interactive experiments. Vin resigned from the Times in 2010, in the time since then, he's done some deep thinking about what he saw and now what he sees ahead. Koyvin, Vin, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Koi, is it true that everything you learned about design, you learned in the 90s?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's when I first started practicing as a designer and I learned some of the hardest, rawest lessons.
1: Oh, like what? <laughs>
0: well, that's when I learned that I was not a good enough designer to solve every design problem, that I was going to do my best work on the ones that really resonated with me and that I felt a real passion for.
1: How did you figure that out? How did that come to you?
0: Well, I started out doing work at a small ad agency outside of Washington, D.C. that specialized in real estate, Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, commercial real estate, residential real estate, working with developers. And I actually... Did not have a design degree from college. I had an illustration degree. So I was just happy to get a job doing design. And I got a great little education at this ad agency doing you know ads and brochures and all kinds of things. But I realized that I wasn't really doing my best work because I didn't really feel passionate about the content. And that's a lesson I've just learned over and over again in the years is the more passionate I feel about the subject matter, the better job I'll do.
1: Let's start a little bit before the 90s, just Mm -hmm. to get a full overview of your life thus far. You were born in Saigon, Vietnam, in 1971, Mm -hmm. and you moved to Maryland when you were three. Do you have any memories of living in Saigon at all?
0: I had a few vague memories of being born in Vietnam and growing up there with my parents, but nothing really, really more than that just a handful of of, of flashes here and there.
1: And do you feel that being born in Saigon has influenced your work in a specific way or not at all? Well,
0: certainly being an immigrant has. In what way? You know, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, as kind of an outsider, it was still at a time when assimilation was hard. And so I really turned to art, to my art classes, to my art teachers and comic books and, you know, the, all the artist books that my parents introduced to me as a kind of, you know, safe place where I could go and really spread my wings and be myself. And that, you know, led directly to becoming a designer and, and wanting to make a career out of visual communication of some kind.
1: So there was a a moment during college where, despite the fact that you were studying illustration and painting set to become an illustrator or a painter, Mm -hmm. you made the shift to design, though you didn't graduate with a design degree per se. That's right. Was there an epiphany that occurred? Was there a realization that?
0: Yeah, there really was. I was trying to set a couple of um, lines of type for a painting. Really? Yes. With Letraset? Or? No. Well, I sort of had this vague, vague understanding that you could do that with a Macintosh, but I didn't know how because I was you know, working on canvases the whole time. But I was friendly with folks in the design program, and I said, would, I, I said to one of them, would you show me how to do this? And she said, sure. And there was, I think, just before spring break of my junior year, I believe, and she sat me down in front of freehand. It was Alda's freehand. Alda's
1: freehand. (laughs) And she showed me how to do this.
0: And that was the moment of epiphany where I realized, wow, all of the problems that I'm interested in as a a painter or an illustrator, they're really design problems. That's, That's really what I should be doing.
1: How do you make the distinction between a design problem and an art problem?
0: I sort of think of it as you know, organizing everything and mm. You creating... love order, don't you, Koi? Yes, yeah, <laughs> very much. Organizing everything so that there is an underlying logic to it, but then there is also an elegance that results from from the order. And if you look at all my paintings from before, they're actually, on the one hand, they're actually very collage-like, um, which sort of leads back to mix But on the other hand, they were really about layout compositions and ordering-like things together. And... I had never really thought to do design before because in the, you know, pre-digital world of having to do mechanicals and Ruby lists and so forth, I just wasn't good at that. And I, I found it to be really, really difficult for me. But when somebody introduced me to the Mac and, you know, I realized that I, I was really good at, you know, understanding digital technology and that I could use that to tackle these kinds of problems that really made sense for me, that was, that was a great day. And so like I said it was just before spring break. And I called my parents and said, I'm not coming home for spring break. I'm just going to spend the whole time in the computer lab, you know, just learning about this stuff and and playing with it.
1: Do you think that your early experience Xeroxing comics had anything to do with your sort of love at first sight experience with the Macintosh?
0: Yeah, I I think so. I mean, what, what interests me about comics is this graphical combination of words and type to tell stories and if you step back from a comic book page it's really kind of very orderly at least most of them are the ones that i've always been attracted to are
1: which are the ones that you're attracted to
0: well you know growing up a lot of superhero comics but particularly herge and tintin and um, a lot of european comics where um, the structure of the panels is actually very very rigid and and not you know super expressive the way comics are now. And and that's why I, I kind of have lost a lot of interest in comics now, because they've sort of lost this uh this sense of order that I really like in in many ways. So I, I, I loved comics as a kid and as I got to college I was like, I want to see if I can make this happen, publish it, right? And Computers sort of made it possible to become a publisher, you know, a, a very low-grade publisher in the '90s. I mean, it's it's even more possible now, but but it, it gave you all these shortcuts to to printing things that you know we didn't have before, including you know access to professional typography. And so I sort of think of it as when I was xeroxing and stapling comics together, it was a kind of publishing. And then when I was able to get my hands on a Mac and start creating layouts and setting type. It was, you know, assuming the role of a publisher myself and and being able to create all these things that I vaguely knew that I wanted to create, like, you know, whether it's newsletters or brochures or just, you know, fantastical things that really had no purpose. These tools made it incredibly easy to make that happen.
1: After college, you actually started working in a more traditional print design arena, and I watched your Creative Mornings talk, and I saw some of that early work that I heard you refer to yeah. as your lost decade of embarrassing work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I actually thought there was a lot of it that was quite charming. What was so embarrassing about it? Can you describe what was embarrassing sure. about it for the listeners?
0: So after working at that ad, ad agency doing real estate work, I went to a, a more creative studio in D.C. where we did a lot of branding work and a lot of, you know, identities and, and brand and um, you know, point of sale stuff, all, all, all different kinds of stuff. And I was really happy to be working in that environment because it was real graphic design, like the kind of graphic design I had read about at school. But I just wasn't that great at it. That's the thing. I mean, we, we, we had clients that I just didn't really understand what they were trying to do. It wasn't so much that that they were doing things I thought were boring. It was just that I just didn't really have the empathy that you really need in order to do great, great work. And what I was really interested in at the time is just trying out all of these fancy design tricks that <laughs> especially, you know, graphic design in the 90s was an explosive time stylistically. And there was just so much cool stuff happening. And I wanted to do that stuff just to just to play with it. And I was trying to uh, apply a lot of those ideas to clients, you know, for whom it was not appropriate. <laughs> or or at the very least, it was just not a comfortable marriage. And the end result was a lot of work that that is mostly good for a laugh these days.
1: Well, I really enjoyed seeing how you've evolved and how your style has evolved. And yeah where you've come since then. I think yeah. it's a really interesting part of, of your journey as a designer and, and part of your life narrative that's so interesting.
0: Well, one of the things I tried to say in that talk is, I mean, I, I poked a lot of fun at myself, but I also really valued the time to experiment and to to find out what I was good at and what I wasn't good at.
1: And it's also interesting to see so many of the early threads of your interests coming to fruition now, mm-hmm. maybe 20 years later. Yep. But from what I understand, it seemed like at that time you were trying to recreate what you were doing in print mm-hmm. online. And and so I really want to have a conversation with you about what you see as the differences in how you approach something that lives online and something that doesn't live online.
0: In the beginning, when I started working online, I saw it as... An even more complete, even more immediate tool set that let me be a publisher to do the things that I, I'd wanted to do offline, you know, have a, a magazine or produce books or, or, or pamphlets and stuff like that. And I spent a lot of my early career as an interaction designer thinking in that mode, thinking, you know, we're going to push this, this nascent tool set as far as, as we can push it to emulate the things that we know in the analog world. And there's, there's some value to that. I think it's always worth coming back to, you know, the history of visual communication and seeing what we've lost in technology and seeing what we can regain. But at the same time, you know, when I look back at the work that I was doing, it sort of shows that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the medium was good for. What do you mean? So publishing in the way that I was thinking about it is really like a one-to-many a dynamic, whether it 's an author, an editor or a designer creating something they think they want to disseminate to many, many people, and the internet and digital media and and the web it 's really a many to many medium where people are communicating to everybody else at the same time, and I felt like I was creating products or i was creating design solutions that didn't really fully acknowledge that that we're still trying to focus on what's this one person have to say to everybody else and not really thinking about okay what's what does everybody else have to say back and what are the things they expect from that conversation between the the person creating the content and the person receiving the content
1: so in 2001 you founded behavior with mm-hmm. a number of colleagues that you had worked with previously mm-hmm. Now, I have two questions about that. <laughs> what was it like to start a company in 2001? Mm-hmm. And after the dot-com meltdown, what mm-hmm. were you guys thinking?
0: <laughs> we founded the company... In late 2001, even after September 11th. So, um, you and
1: Steve Jobs, he, he launches the <laughs> yeah. iPad, the iPod, you start <laughs> yeah, a company.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of us did a lot better than the other.
1: <laughs> uh, okay. Well, um, it's all relative.
0: <laughs> so, uh, and then even before September 11th, um, as you said, there was the dot com meltdown. So, these two events together made it really difficult to find a job. And in many, many respects, you know, my behavior, co founders and I, really had no other choice. We're like, we better, you know, form a company and go out and, and sort of make something happen for ourselves because nobody's going to hire us. We, I think, formalized the company on December 4th and, you know, won a few clients and, you know, we're able to build a good head of steam and win more clients and, and um, build a really good business. Actually, my former partners have done even better um, since I left. So, you know, the studio has been around for um, over 10 years now.
1: Now, you talk about just like going out and getting business as if in 2002, it was just like the easiest thing to just pick up some clients. And I mean, I remember conferences being canceled. I remember studios being closed. What do you think gave you that edge at that time?
0: Well, it's actually pretty easy to become a studio that's doing some work if you can find just one or two clients and start to build on top of that. So even at that time, I mean, I I wouldn't, Undersell how hard we worked, but there were just enough nibbles out there that you know, we could, you know, build something on top of that. What was really hard was building that into sustainable business, um, because you know we were trying to stay lean, and so we were using a lot of contractors, and the contractors were demanding certain rates, and clients were trying to, you know, to pay you know certain rates, and so that that was really difficult.
1: I read something really poignant that. You said in a conference, and and it was that it took you about four or five years of living in New York to feel like you really belonged here. Yeah. And, and that was a really, really intense time to be living in New York. Um, so what was it that gave you that sense of belonging?
0: I think the fact that I, I lived, you know, below 14th Street in Manhattan when, you know, those you know, terrible events of September 11th happened, that made me say, OK, I'm really here. You know, it was a really historic moment. And that helped me feel comfortable with you know the fact that I wasn't just a guest in this city.
1: So not being entirely sure that you are meant to be in New York, not ever having set out to work in journalism somehow mm-hmm. uh, in the mid 2000s, you get a call from The New York Times, I guess. Is that how it happens? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it wasn't as simple as that. A friend of mine was friendly with Steve Heller.
1: Oh, Steve. You know, I think if everybody digs far enough down into their yeah. lives, they yes. will find Steve Heller doing some sort of machination exactly. to get them to that place There, yeah, in. Yeah, It's yeah. amazing. We, we owe a lot to Steve. Yes, we do.
0: And he introduced me to Steve, who was helping the digital part of the New York Times find a new design director. And I went in to talk to him and he said, OK, let me introduce you to some other folks. And when I went in to, for those discussions, I thought, well, it couldn't really be the design director position. It was probably a design director position. And I quickly discovered like, you know, that's that's the main seat, so to speak, was the one they were hiring for. And the discussions went pretty quickly. And I realized I'd better figure out if I really want to do this or not before I let it go any further. And um, at the end of 2005, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And
1: so you were still working at Behavior mm-hmm. at the time. How did you break it to your partners?
0: I've posed it in a very honest way. I said, this is an opportunity I feel like I can't pass up. And I felt like I decided to leave behavior with some reluctance because we just spent four years working really, really hard to build something substantial. But I felt like I could do that again if I really needed to. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for me to have to start all over. Um, On the other hand, I felt like there was this great opportunity for me to to learn a, a whole lot that I didn't know about the way design works by going to the New York Times. And I felt like this is an opportunity that I should really, really take hold of.
1: When you first took the job, what were your goals? What were you hoping to do there? What were they hoping that you would accomplish there?
0: I think the biggest thing that they were looking for from anybody who would have taken over that position was to build a good design culture, good digital design culture. On the newspaper side, of course, you know, with people like you know Steve and with Tom Bodkin and, and the many great art directors they have there. They, they had a great design culture for many, many years. But on the digital side, they didn't have that. And they needed somebody who could come in and really make, you know, persuasive, rational arguments for design and to fight for a place at the table, the decision-making table for design. And that's probably the most important thing I did while I was there was really to, to raise the, the profile of digital design.
1: When you left in 2010, you stated on your blog that there were some rough patches, as there are with any job, mm-hmm. but on the whole, it was the best job you ever had.
0: Oh, yeah, I believe that, yeah.
1: Talk about some of the rough patches. What what kind of challenges did you face?
0: I walked into that job with a lot of things going for me. The Times is full of people who have strong opinions, but they basically all want the same thing. They want to produce great journalism and deliver it in the, you know, the, the most effective way possible. So everybody wants design to succeed there. But the hard part is, you know, agreeing on how to make things successful, especially in a big... <laughs> As with everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's nothing that's particularly unique to that organization. It's something that's true for every big organization. The idea that there are multiple stakeholders for every project, for every product, for every, every process. That's what I talk about when I, when I talk about rough patches, is, is trying to get things done that you think should be simple, but you have to run them by three people for approval.
1: So what would you say was your biggest success while working at The New York
0: Times? The biggest success I had at the Times is the team that I assembled. And aside from that. Aside from the team. I, <laughs> um,
1: I want to know about the design. What do you think is the most successful thing that you were able to accomplish?
0: The design team and I, I think, were really successful in transitioning the news organization away from being newspaper-centric to being much more of a native digital experience. So everything we designed, whether it was a new version of the opinion section or whether it was a new mobile app or whether it was a browser for 150 years of their archives, it was all about really embracing the native technologies and creating user experiences that were really complementary to the way people actually use the internet. So that's, I think, my biggest accomplishment there is is imbuing all of the design solutions with that kind of approach.
1: I read that you asked yourself when you were first there, what does it mean to be a customer of the New York Times? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what you found.
0: To be a customer of the New York Times, you feel a really powerful, deep connection to a grand tradition. And you have really, really tremendous expectations for the journalists, for the editors, for you know, the the backup staff, so to speak, people like myself who helped deliver that content. At the same time, as everybody knows, the newspaper industry and in the times itself was undergoing this massive change where customer expectations were really, really changing. So people wanted to maintain that sense of tradition. At the same time, they had this sometimes contradictory impulse to be able to access things the way they access content through Google or they access content, you know, through blogs and so forth. And again, it's not necessarily easily reconcilable motivations. And the idea of a customer of the New York Times is, you know, something that, at least while I was working there, was very much in flux and I think continues to be in flux.
1: What do you think of The Times' most recent decision to have the paywall begin after 10 articles instead of 20?
0: Well, I'm sort of on the record as not really liking the paywall. So,
1: Why don't you like the paywall?
0: I think it's a short-term strategy. I think it extracts a decent but probably not game-changing amount of revenue from The Times' hardcore customers. I think the real danger, though, is... As The Times continues to create new products, these products all have to be seen through the filter of, well, is it free or is it paid? Is it part of the paywall or or not? Or which one of these many different packages that we offer for accessing content does this product fit into? And that can really hobble the development of a good digital product. And at the same time, I think the paywall is probably turning away lots of younger readers who in another era would have... Become lifelong customers of the New York Times if they had basically unfettered access to the content, and I think I think the real test for the paywall will be in another ten years or so. We, we look at the demographics and see if the population has started to drift even you know older or remains steady or has been able to to get younger.
1: Do you think that the digital version of the times is being handled more like an analog version by the sheer virtue of having a paywall.
0: I think that might be true a little bit, but I have to give them credit in how they've handled the paywall. They have been able to preserve a lot of the the values that started to become prevalent when I was working there along with everybody else, this idea that we need to make it more social, we need to make it easier to access and and all of these sort of truly native digital experience kinds of things. And I I think, you know, to their credit, the paywall has not hampered that too much.
1: I read that when you worked at The New York Times that you used to have friendly arguments with a colleague there about the role of information architects on your digital design team. And apparently the debate was over things that an information architect does. Mm -hmm. You talked about how you'd go back and forth over the usefulness of dividing responsibilities Mm -hmm. and segregating planning from visual execution. And so you asked the question whether the information architect, or you were asked the question, whether the information architect was even necessary. And I think, there's a big question now that you've been grappling with online uh, about the term information architect mm-hmm. and whether or not it's gone out of style and whether or not now the term that's more appropriate is user experience designer. Mm-hmm. So I want to get your, your sort of up-to-the-minute thoughts <laughs> <laughs> on, on this debate.
0: Well, I think it's a continual debate. And I think it's, that's partly because the medium is still evolving. You know, at the times, I think there is a valid argument for the information architect.
1: For listeners that might not be fully fully familiar with all of these titles and the semantics, can you explain sure. from the Koivin point of view, what is an information architect?
0: So when you're creating any kind of a digital product, whether it's a website or an app, there is a lot of design planning that goes into creating that experience. You have to organize the content. You have to think about what are the buckets that the content falls into, and then what are the conventions by which users will access that content, whether the navigation is a bar at the top or it's you know some other kind of you know more organic way of of addressing all that stuff. So an information architect is one way to address those planning needs. You, you task somebody who may not be a great quote unquote graphic designer, somebody who doesn 't know all the intricacies of typography and color and layout, but somebody who has a, an exceedingly adept organizational mind who can take a big bucket of content or a big bucket of features and functionality and organize them in such a way that it 's very intuitive for people to access them apart from how how good it looks
1: so sort of a visual conductor of sorts yes
0: yes <laughs> yeah or an experiential conductor of sorts okay. yeah. The question is whether that's a role that really needs to be broken out into, you know, a separate person, a separate staff member. And at the times, we did have that job description, information architect. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work in every case. And there are some some trends that I've seen that suggest that you know, what my colleague was arguing for, which was that this should be a part of the designer's job or the visual designer's job. That might be a trend that's starting to make more and more sense as the economics of this stuff gets more and more compressed, so to speak, as uh, in-house budgets get squeezed tighter. You know, employers will start asking their designers to do both. And certainly. In smaller companies, there is a real economic advantage to having somebody who can do both, somebody who can do all of that upfront planning and also execute the fit and finish of the product. That's, that's a tremendously valuable person. And what I've seen, because um, I'm friendly with a, a lot of folks in the industry who seem to always be looking to hire new talent, is more and more they want somebody who combines both aspects of design together.
1: I think it's the result of the maturation of an industry. I mean, I think back 20 years ago. When all of a sudden designers were required to be able to typeset their own content. Right. And that was something that was virtually unheard of. I right. mean, typesetting was such a separated skill from what we were doing as designers back then that, I mean, and it was also one of the most expensive. Yes. I mean, even if you, to, to spec type was a real art. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden designers were expected to do that too, and, and it put the typesetters out of business. Yeah. And I think that we're beginning to see a similar situation where designers as a practice, as a discipline, are being expected to do quite a lot of the things that were segmented out in the newer technologies, in the newer use of technologies. I think it's a great thing, actually. The more somebody knows about anything, the better they'll become at doing anything in their lives. I
0: agree. From a career perspective, if if you... Take the position that I'm going to be a generalist or I'm going to, I'm going to master more than just a specialized skill. I'm going to master this, this range of skills. That makes you tremendously valuable, and you can write your own ticket these days.
1: So what do you think of iPad 3, Koi?
0: <laughs> I think iPad 3 is great. Yeah? I think
1: – Are you still skeptical about the iPad?
0: Oh, I actually, I've been bullish on the iPad, I think, from day one. I've been skeptical about some approaches to delivering content and functionality on the iPad. But I still think it's a transformative device. And I think in five or ten years, a lot of what we call you know, personal computing that we do on laptops and desktops, you know, that's all going to move over to these tablets.
1: So what you were... Not bullish about, because I'm not quite sure what the opposite of bullish is. <laughs> <laughs> bearish. <laughs> bearish, thank you. Yes. I only want to think optimistically yeah. today. <laughs> so so was it the apps themselves that you were feeling bearish Well, oh, Particularly about? the
0: way publishers were approaching tablets and, and the iPad in particular.
1: Okay, so talk about that if you yeah. can.
0: So a lot of publishers, starting on almost on day one of the iPad, their approach was to create what some people call replica apps, you know, magazines that look like analog magazines. and Isn't that just
1: like a PDF?
0: <laughs> in, a, in a lot of cases, a PDF would be better because they, they, they look at, at the tablet as an opportunity to deliver this very, very elaborate, high-touch multimedia experience, which is, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but the amount of constraints that that puts on the user in terms of what how they can consume the content, whether it's you know, controlling the type size or reading at their own pace or even you know, how long a publisher requires a user to wait before they can even access the content because some of these apps are you know, hundreds of megabytes in download. All of that, I think, runs counter to the way people really should be accessing content on these devices.
1: Why were publishing houses like Hundenest and Hearst so late to the game with their apps and with, and with their online presence
0: Yeah, well, I think digital media really undermines this idea that you can control the whole presentation. It makes that absolute fine control that we were able to achieve in print very, very difficult to recreate. The idea that you know the pace at which people will turn pages and, and you know exactly where type will land with respect to images and so forth. So embracing those dynamics has been really, really difficult for big publishers because they're so accustomed to control. And when they saw the iPad, I think they saw, oh, here's a chance now to do things that the web did wrong, which is, you know, we can control everything again. And I think the way, you know, that strategy has borne out is that, you know, users really don't care as much about, you know, this super fine-tuned layer of control that the publishers have as much as they just want to be able to access the core content and to read it on the fly without having to wait for hundreds of megabytes to download. And, and they want the experience to be really smooth and without bugs. And a lot of these apps are very buggy. they, you know, The multimedia features don't work or they will crash the app and, and so forth. So I think that this approach to the tablet is just been misguided. I think the iPad has simplified many, many things. Whereas, you know, publications have gotten more complicated on this device. And I think they should be thinking about the opposite. They should be thinking about making the simplest possible experience on these devices.
1: I read recently that you thought that the trend might be going back to the browser in the near future. Do you you still feel that way?
0: You know, I thought that for a while. I think I underestimated how effective the App Store is and um, Apple's newsstand. It's just being able to carve out that real estate that everybody knows this is where I go to find good stuff. That has been really, really effective. And um, I think it's not so much the browser as more lightweight technologies like HTML5 that let you deliver content, deliver type. And, and HTML5 is getting more powerful all the time. So you can achieve a lot of the layout goodness that, that publishers want without all of the trappings of coding things in Adobe's platform or in, even in, you know, Apple's platform.
1: So after nearly five years at The New York Times, you decided to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, I think this coincided with the birth of your daughter, Twee Yes. You wrote that when your daughter was born, you realized that your tolerance for risk was going to reduce dramatically with every day she grew older. So you resolved to do whatever it took to be happy in your career while you still had the chance, both for yourself and to set a good example for her. And you left somewhat tight-lipped at the time – with what your future plans were going to be. But we now know, the world now knows, that you started your company, Lascaux, and launched a fabulous application called Mixel, Mm -hmm. which is a collage, a social collage application. So talk about how the birth of your daughter changed your career path and influenced what you're doing now. And then I also want to talk about Mixel, of course, this extraordinary application.
0: My daughter came along at about the time I, I started realizing this isn't getting any easier at the New York Times. And also at the same time, I started thinking I'm so drawn by what's happening in social media, so drawn by what's happening in technology. I really want to try my hand at, at design in that mode. And, you know, as, as you said, I realized that it was never going to be a better time than at that moment. It may not have been the ideal time. The ideal time might have been w- well before she was born. But it was not going to be easier when she was five years old or 10 years old. And so I realized I'd better make a break for it, so to speak. And I left in the middle of 2010. And I knew that I wanted to do a startup of some kind, either join somebody's startup or do a product of my own, a startup of my own. And I spent about six months really trying to figure out what exactly made sense for me. I talked to lots of people about potentially joining up with them. And I talked to lots of people about joining up with me and doing some ideas that I had. And you know, as I said, I really believe the iPad is transformative. And I took a look at this device and I realized that even though people are buying it to read email and to watch videos and you know, to do Facebook, it, at the same time it's this perfect tool for visual self-expression, because you can just swipe to make a mark. And there's nothing more intuitive than that. It's just like working on paper. And I realized that you could use this device to get, you know, a huge audience of people expressing themselves visually, making art, so to speak. And I thought that's a great problem to spend, you know, the next five years of my life on. It's really, really fun, and it's satisfying. And it goes right back to the things that drove me when I was a kid was just basically, you know, a creative outlet, a, a way to release all this energy. And I started thinking about the best way to do that. And I realized that, you know, getting people to draw or paint, which was where we, I first started, was probably not going to be too easy to do because so many people f- sort of feel that they're not good at that. And so I started thinking about how the social web or, or social media is really about half text and half photos. And photos are such a huge part of what drives social media. And I said, well, what if there was a way where you could express yourself through photos, not just by taking them, but by combining them together? And that is basically collage, right? And you can use this perfect tool for manipulating images. You can just l- let a user draw around, you know, a, a, a picture of a car and, Crop out, you know, all the parts that they don't want, and combine it with other parts, and I think that's a pretty powerful idea. And then, the iPad is not just a terminal in, in that it's there's no hard drive in it, as, as you know we discuss. Everything's on the network more or less. So, why can't this act of making collages also be fully networked? In that you know, when you work with an image, the server can store the original image and even though you might cut it down to just the part that you want, you can always revert to its original image and also let anybody else come in and reuse that piece and revert to... The original image and crop out maybe a different part that they want to. And I think I started to think that's a really, really powerful dynamic if we can get that to work.
1: Yeah, it's very forgiving. Yes. <laughs> but I think the very, very best way to understand exactly what Mixel does is to simply see it in action and try it yourself. Yeah. But can you describe it for the listeners? So it's sure. It, how, how does it
0: actually work? So it's a social network in that when you come in, there's a concept of following people and people following you. So you see all the people that you're following, all your friends, the most recent collages that they've posted.
1: And they're not just collages. I mean, they're really works of art. Yeah, they're
0: really phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. What the community has created is just collage really Collage is a bit of an yeah. understatement. Yes. So uh, the app also lets you create a collage, of course. So you can tap on, start a new Mixel, start a new collage, and you get a blank page and you get – We give you the option to add images from your iPad, from your Facebook account. We also have incorporated a a web image search, so you can search for anything on the web. If you're looking for a picture of a fish, you can find that. Once you grab these images and put them onto the canvas, then you can use your finger to crop them out, to resize them, to rotate them, to flip them. You can add as many images as you want.
1: It's a magical experience. Thank you. It really is. I was, I was playing around with it, and then it did something that I, I actually was intuitively trying to do something. And it did what I was asking it to do, essentially, with my hands. Uh-huh. And I thought, damn, Coy, <laughs> this is good. Oh, it's really good because there was no direction telling me what to do. And I tried it and it did it. And I was like, bingo, this is going to work.
0: Oh, that's terrific to hear. Yeah.
1: It's really, really beautiful. Um, What I also love about it is the notion that people are actually creating something. They're making things. It's not just about reporting where they're eating or where they're going. Not that there's anything wrong with doing those things. I'm addicted to doing those things too. But this is a real opportunity to share creativity with others in a really unique way.
0: I mean, one of the best things that we hear over and over again is, oh, I, I sit down on my couch with Mixel and the TV's on, but I just get sucked into Mixel and it's, you know, 90 minutes later all of a sudden. And in a sense, it just feels great to be stealing time away from television and people are actually making cool stuff. I think that's, that's really, you know, really kind of powerful. We, we really like that.
1: Well, I, I, we really wish you all the best with this new venture. It's an extraordinary thing. Thank you. One of the things that I came upon in, in researching all the things that you've done was the quote that you said that... Very often it seems to me that regular people now understand technology better than many companies do. Mm -hmm. And, Koi, I think that's because of you. And I think a lot of that is because of the work that you're doing. So we thank you for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for doing all of this wonderful work.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun.
1: To learn more about Koi Vin, visit his website at www.subtraction.com. And to see some Mixels or to make some Mixels, go to mixel.cc. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Randy Urtica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.